Thank you, worship team, brothers and sisters. Thank you for being here this morning to worship King Jesus with us. Um, I'm excited about today. I'm grateful for today. As the little ones head to the back. We are, we are beginning our series, which is going to serve as a large-scale membership class um, for Hillshot Baptist Church. And so kind of the way we're doing uh, membership here going forward is that um, if you are an existing Cottondale or Liberty member, then to kind of have your membership transferred, as it were, over to Hillside, we're asking everyone to attend, or if for some reason you can't make it, um, watch the, the videos. Um, if you are watching online, I'm sorry about the poor video quality. We're going to get some new internet here pretty soon. Um, but we're, we will have recordings in case you, you miss one. But we want attendance at all of these, as well as the... Um, the membership, uh, the covenant signing ceremony that we're going to have at the end of the series on week number five, which will be February uh, the 19th. Um, if you're not an existing member of Cottondale or Liberty um, and you want to participate with us, of course, you know, anybody can join anytime in the future according to our existing um, uh, uh, ways of doing that. Um, but if you want to come and join together with us this time in this kind of initiatory beginning of Hillside Baptist Church, the, the the kind of founding members, if you will, of Hillside Baptist Church. If you're not an existing member of Continental Liberty, you also need to um, have a, just a, an interview with Ron or, or I or both of us. Just We want to get to know you a little bit, get to know your story, hear about how you came to know Jesus, um, and make sure you understand um, what we believe as a church and things like that. Um, but it is exciting. We're, we're re-covenanting together as a body of believers. We're, we're saying... Uh, we're saying here's what the scripture teaches about what it means to belong to Jesus Christ, what it means to be his people, what it means to be the church. The church is God's plan A for the world. There is no plan B. And we get to participate in that in the way that we live out the gospel and the way that we love one another in the church. And we want to take that seriously. And so this series is a, is a way to help us to work through that. Um, the Bible is full of commands to remember the bible is full of commands to remember and the reason why the bible tells us to remember so often is because we're very prone to forget we're very prone to forget who god is what he's like what he calls us to do and so this uh this series is going to be a way for us to remember what it means to be the church going forward as hillside baptist church uh the first thing that we're going to talk about as part of this four-part series uh is doctrine. Doctrine. We're going to talk about our doctrine. A doctrine is core to the life of the church. What does doctrine mean? Well, doctrine just means teaching. Okay, that's what the word means, is it means teaching or something that is taught. Of course, nowadays it has a, a very religious connotation, but doctrine is, is, doctrine is what we believe, uh, particularly as Christians, what we believe the Bible teaches. Um, now, doctrine is important, despite what some people may think, because really it's, it's central to human identity because you are what you believe. And what you believe matters because we act on our beliefs. And so you, if you want to know what a person believes, watch how they live. Listen to how they speak. It doesn't matter what they say they believe. Their words and their actions betray what they really believe. And so what we believe is of utmost importance. And of importance. And so we must know what we believe, be confirmly convicted in what we believe, and stand with a humble yet confident faith before a lost world that we have the truth that can 
set them free and save their souls. And that matters. So the first thing we want to do is to remind ourselves of what we believe as a church. Because every church has to believe something. If you don't believe in anything, then what's the point? Right? So every church has to believe something. And uh, it has been recognized down through the years that um, certain core beliefs need to be shared for a body of believers to be able to work together and to fellowship together and to, and to serve together. Um, and so it's important that we as members of Hillside Baptist Church, if we're going to be members of Hillside, are able to wholeheartedly embrace its doctrines. In fact, our Constitution says this. It says, The membership of this church will consist of persons who confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, who give evidence of regeneration by living consistent with their profession, who affirm and submit to the views of faith, doctrine, and practice of this church, who have been baptized by immersion and who have been received into its membership according to the bylaws of this church. And so if you're going to be a member of Hillside Baptist Church, you need to know what we believe and you need to be able to affirm that you believe what we believe because that's part of our unity and identity as members of Hillside Baptist Church because doctrine matters. Okay, so we're just going to dive right in this morning. I, clearly, I can't teach through um, our, whole, our whole statement of faith. That would take way too long. Um, but we do, as uh, Brother Ron mentioned, we do have copies of our articles of faith on the table in the back here in the lobby. Um, I would ask that every one of you, every family group, grab one of those. If you've never read through our articles of faith, before you become a member, you need to read through that at least, at least once to know what we are claiming that we believe and make sure that you can affirm them um, before joining our church. The, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to just summarize our doctrine by giving just 10 key points. So there's a lot of things we can say, but I'm just going to give 10 key points. If you grab the bulletin this morning, they're all there in that little sermon, uh, little note sheet that was in your bulletin, and you can use that to take some notes. If you want to do that, we're just going to dive right in this morning as we talk about our doctrine in 10 points. All right. Number one, the first thing we're going to talk about is biblical inerrancy, biblical inerrancy. All right. Biblical inerrancy is uh, the understanding that the, the Bible as historically composed of the 66 books of the Protestant canon is the word of God. This book is the word of God. That's what we're saying, all right? It is inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts, okay? That is, the Baptist Faith and Measure says that the, the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. The Bible is truth without any mixture of error. That means that it is therefore the final authority on every matter to which it speaks. So this is, this is, this is the first doctrine because it's the bedrock doctrine upon everything upon which everything else is built. If we, don't, if we don't have a clear and authoritative standard of truth, then, then, then we're lost, right? Because if there's nothing that we can look at and point to and say that's true, then what does it mean? It means that, that, that really there's no such thing as truth, right? And if truth is whatever you think it is, and then truth is whatever you think it is, then who's right and what's true? We don't know. We can't know. But if God has revealed himself in a book written down in a manner that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, such that it is infallible and inerrant in every matter to which it speaks, 
right? Then we can, in fact, look at this book and say, I know that this is true. So when we say that the Bible is inspired, we want to be very careful and clear on that. We're not saying that the Bible is inspired like Beethoven or Shakespeare was inspired, okay? What we're saying is that the Bible was inspired like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were inspired. What did they say when they proclaimed their prophecies to Israel? They said, thus says the Lord God. And then the words that followed were actual words from God. Okay? And that's what we're saying, is that the Bible was written in such a way that men who wrote were infallibly carried along by the Holy Spirit such that if the Bible has said something, we can correctly say that God has said it. Which means... And since God cannot lie, that means that the Bible contains no error whatsoever. This is not to deny the complexity of biblical interpretations at times. Some, some interpretation issues are complex. But what it does say, and this is crucial, what it does say is that we, when we have approached this book with a humble, faith-filled spirit, and we have come soberly to evaluate what it says to the best of our ability and reason judgment, using proper methods of interpretation, and we can quite uh, uh, plainly perceive that there's a clear teaching of Scripture, we can take that teaching and understand it to be the, the infallible truth and word of God. Which is why every sermon, every song, everything we do needs to be governed and guided by the word of God. Why? Because this isn't our world, it's God's world. This isn't our church, it's God's church. We don't get to make it up, right? We belong to God, he, God expects it to be done a certain way, and we should strive with all our hearts to do it that way in order to please God because he knows best because he's God. And that's the basic posture of a Christian, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so if you have a question about something, the first place you need to ask is, what does the Bible say about it? And then really that's the end of the story. When biblical inerrancy is lost, and this is why this is why it's the first doctrine, and this is why this is so crucial, and this this is crucial to our history as Southern Baptists. If you're familiar at all with the history of Southern Baptists, we had what was called the conservative resurgence because the the convention, at least in its seminaries, was on the verge of losing biblical inerrancy and was about to go the way of every other mainline denomination, aka the way of the dodo bird. Because when you lose biblical inerrancy, Right, that all the other mainline denominations, they're, they're withering, they are dying because they've abandoned the inerrancy of the Word of God. Because when you, ha- when you, come to, when you have church, but you're not able to... Th- Why go to church if you don't have anything to say? If the church believes exactly like the world believes, why does the world need to come to church? You got nothing to tell them. But if this Word is an errant and infallible Word of God and He has truth that can correct us and that can change us and that can inform us to, to, um, to fix our ignorance and cause us to repent of our sin, then that's something we need to know and we need to hear. When biblical inerrancy is lost, it's a, it's a slippery slope that there is no recovery from. Because when you lose biblical inerrancy, what happens? Well, then what inevitably happens is when you come to this book, you come to say, you come to ask, not what does God have to say to me, you come asking what is true in this book? And then all of a sudden, you're the one who's deciding what to believe in the Bible. And rather than the Bible searching you, you're searching the Bible. And you become the arbiter of truth. 
not Scripture. So biblical inerrancy is the bedrock of our, of, of our church, of our doctrine, of our beliefs. So number one, a, a biblical inerrancy. Number two, the Trinity. The Trinity. We believe in the triune God as understood. As, uh, the, the, the historic Christian faith is the faith of the triune God. One God eternally exists as a tripersonal being. There is one God who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. Nevertheless, there is one God in whom there is no division of nature, essence, or being. The Trinity is the Christian doctrine that God is three in one and one in three. One, the one God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. There is only one God. Not one God who revealed himself in three different ways. These are all heresies, okay? We believe, the, and the Bible teaches, that God is a triune God. There is one eternal God who has eternally existed as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You say, Pastor, that's confusing. I say, yes. <laughs> because God himself said, there is no one like me. The reason why the Trinity is hard to grasp because we have nothing to compare God to because there is nothing to compare him to. He stands alone as the only being that could exist and does exist in this way. Three in one and one in three. One God eternally existing as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He, God is holy. He is other. He is unique. He is set apart and above and beyond and outside anything and everything else. It's hard to grasp because, because we, don't have, we don't have some other category outside of God to understand this because God is the only one that is like this, the triune God. And, the, it, it, and there's a lot we can say about that. It is crucial. It is crucial that God is a triune God, and it actually makes the Christian faith actually work because since God is a trinity and not just a unity, but a trinity, a triune God, right, that there can actually be love within God himself because God is more than one person. And there's a lot more that we can say about that, but the Trinity is crucial to the Christian faith because, that it, because it's describing the very nature of who God is. So if you worship a God that is not the triune God, then the fact of the matter is you are worshiping a different God because God is either a Trinity or he's not. Right, which is why which is why it's so crucial and ha- crucial and has been historically for the Christian faith because there's a lot of Christian uh, cults, it, for lack of a better word, that deny the Trinity. Okay, Mormons deny the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. That's not trying to be sectarian for the sake of being sectarian. It's trying to say that if you read the whole Bible, the Old Testament especially, but of course the whole Bible. To worship anything other than the one true God is idolatry. And so we don't get to play games with God and just kind of make it up, right? The Trinity, God is a Trinity, and that's who he is. And so to worship him in any other way is to worship a false God. So number one is Trinity. I mean, uh, biblical narrative Trinity. Number three here, humanity. Humanity. What do we believe about humanity? It's probably one of the greatest probably the greatest issue in the world today, the, the greatest uh, flashpoint in our society today is what does it mean to be human? 
Bible, the Bible says that God created man in the image of God. What does that mean? It means all humans from conception to the grave have an inherent dignity and worth with inalienable rights as bearers of the divine image. Human dignity derives from the fact that all human beings are made in the image of God. So this, this, cut, this, cuts, this cuts all pride, this cuts all racism, this cuts all sexism, it cuts all every kind of ism, all right? Because every human being is made in the image of God. Uh, when Noah got off the ark and God reinstituted humanity, if you will, God actually told Noah, he said, if a man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man was in the image of God. Well, what is that saying? It's saying that a murderer should receive capital punishment because, because why? Because they have killed a what? An image bearer of God. So every person in this room bears the image of God. Every person you will ever meet bears the image of God. And, that, and because of that, that person has an in, incredible innate value and worth. Okay? And so the, it's, 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 it's the foundation of all human dignity. The Bible also says that God created humanity male and female. Okay? He created them male and female. Genesis chapter 1. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Okay? That means that there are two genders. Okay? And they're given by God. And those the, the male-female distinctives, then, are good. They are gifts which should be received without undermining the equal value and worth of all persons, right? Men and women are different. For, for thousands of years, that wasn't a controversial statement, right? Men and women are different. It doesn't mean better or worse. It means different, okay? Different means different. God created humanity, male and female, and this is part of them be, bearing the divine image, Okay, and humanity, and when God created everything, he looked at all that he had made, and it says, behold, it was very good. All right, so humanity was created good, but then something horrible happened. It, we, humanity fell, right? So the height of God's crea- creation, his image bearers, humanity fell. We rebelled against the God who created us. So humanity was created good, but upon the fall, we were corrupted by sin. Which, which means that now all human beings inherit a sin nature. And we all equally need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to be restored to right relationship with God. This is the basic fundamental facts about what it means to be human. All right? So we were made in God's image, but we have fallen in our sin and rebellion from the divine image. And, fra- and really the whole story of the Bible is God working to restore his fallen creatures to the height for which they were made. That's the story of the Bible. As I said, the great hot button issues of our day revolve around what it means to be human. And if we're a Christian, what are we saying? We're saying that God gets to define what it means to be human. That's what we're saying, right? If God made us, then by definition... We don't get to make ourselves up. We don't get to define ourselves. That, that, is, that alone is so utterly countercultural today that it just, it's unbearable thought to some. But it's just, if God is and God made us, then we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for God. Every human has profound dignity. 
He created the male and female. Uh, the, 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 the gender binary was God's idea. It's an innate gift to humanity. One of the greatest witnesses that we will have today in the world is just being willing to able, is just being, having the courage to say, you know what? This is how God designed it, and I'm trusting that. You know what? It's actually going to take a remarkable amount of courage to say that in the coming years. And the, and the problem, as I said, with humanity is that because of the fall, we sin. We are now born with a sin nature. All human beings are sinners, me, you, everybody. And we're sinners not just because we're sin. We sin because we're sinners. Right? We're broken on the inside, right? You don't have to teach a child to disobey. You have to teach them to obey. We're born broken, right? We need God's healing, restoration, and his salvation because we're all bent, we're all born with a bent to rebel. And not just against our parents, but against God. We just want to, we want to do what we want to do and not let God take his rightful place as the Lord of our lives. That's sin. It's rebellion. Which is why that brings us to our next point, which is why we need salvation. Which is why we need salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is no less than forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, adoption into his family, and the sure hope of eternal life in a world free from sin. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ and and the gospel. Because we're sinners, we, all of us, without exception, have rebelled against the cosmic king. And rebellion against an infinite God deserves infinite punishment. That's what hell is. The story of the Bible is the story of God bending heaven and earth to deliver his people from the fate they chose for themselves by saving them from their greatest enemy, their own sin. That's the story of the Bible. This doctrine means that without exception, everybody needs salvation. There are not some decent people out there that have kind of arrived and don't need it. Everybody needs salvation because we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We're all under his just wrath and condemnation for rebellion against the God who made us and loved us and gave us life, breath, and everything, and we still want to do things our own way. But God sent his son in order that we might be forgiven of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is crucial, right? Because Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? So not everybody, this shouldn't be controversial either, but sometimes this, not everybody will be saved. Not everybody will be saved. In fact, Jesus himself said, and that should, that should, that should put some fear in us. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be a lot of, I mean, we just, we should remind ourselves of this to take heed lest we fall. There will be a lot of people who sat in pews every Sunday that will not be in heaven. Jesus said that. There is no salvation apart from repentance of sin and personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Because we're sinners and we've rebelled against the, uh, the cosmic king, we need God's mercy. And salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's the next point, is the gospel. What is the gospel? Everybody, if you are a Christian, it is because 
somebody at some point or in some way, the gospel was explained to you and you heard it and you believed it. And you trusted in it. And you believed that Jesus is who he said that he was. And you have surrendered your life and, and submitted to his lordship in your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you are a Christian, you should know the gospel. And you should be able to articulate the gospel to somebody else. What's the gospel? The gospel, in a nutshell, is that through Jesus' sinless life and through his sin-atoning death on the cross and through his death-conquering resurrection on the third day, Jesus has achieved the forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who repent and believe in him. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God didn't send his son for good people. Why? Because there's no such thing. Some of y'all just got punched in the gut. There's no such thing as a good person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is God's standard for heaven? Let me tell you, it's not better than your neighbor. God's standard for heaven is my, God's own perfect righteousness. How are you going to get in? You're not. Unless God gives it to you as a gift that you could never earn. That's what the gospel is. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We could not attain it if we tried, which is why that the only would have died and stayed in the ground, then, you know, that we'd be wasting our time. But on the third day, Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. And we know that for a fact because he appeared to his followers and he said, touch me. Give me something to eat. I'm real. I'm alive, as you can see. Right? And, and what did his resurrection do? Through his resurrection, Jesus proved that he was who he said he was, right? That he was the Son of God. And that he actually accomplished what he said that he accomplished, right? The forgiveness of sins, right? If sin, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, right? So sin leads to death. Well, what if that sin's forgiven? Well, then if your sin is forgiven, then that leads to resurrection life. And so Jesus' resurrection proved that he accomplished what he came to accomplish, which is why the Bible teaches that everyone who has their sins forgiven through Jesus will one day rise from the dead just like Jesus did to reign with him forever in a renewed world. And so that's, that, that is the gospel. The, the, the Christian faith is really unique of all religions because it's not, it's not just a body of religious doctrine. It's not just a bunch of rules to follow. The Christian faith is different than virtually every other faith because it's a historical fact. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If Jesus literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead, you have to believe in him. You can't just ignore somebody who literally rose from the dead. Or if he didn't rise from the dead, then we're literally just wasting our time. But one thing that, you really, that is really an impossibility is to be indifferent toward Jesus. It makes no sense. Either you're all in or you're not in. That's the gospel. That if we repent of our sins and believe in he, him who rose from the dead, God will forgive us of our sins and give us hope of resurrection life. The gospel. Next is the church. The church. As Baptists, the, the church, our beliefs about the church is what makes Baptists Baptists. 
if you're going to be a Baptist, I hope you believe, I hope you understand what it means to be Baptist. And if you don't fully understand, I hope that through this experience, you will understand what it means to be Baptist and, and embrace that as biblical teaching. Because why are Baptists Baptists? Well, Baptists are Baptists not just because it sounds good or because I grew up going to a Baptist church. Right? Baptists are Baptists because they believe that the Bible teaches Baptist doctrine. If, if somebody could persuade me right now that I was wrong about Baptist doctrine, I would stop being a Baptist. Because it's not about being Baptist, it's about being biblical. But to the best of my ability, and I hope to yours too, I've studied the scriptures and believe, and, we, and we're saying we believe as a church, that the Baptist teaching is the most accurate way to understand biblical doctrine, particularly concerning our view of the church. Now, we love all our brothers and sisters who genuinely believe in Christ, but as Baptists, we have seen a biblical church structure that is different from others. All right, in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our statement of faith, it says that a local church is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. So we believe, as Baptists, we believe in what's called congregational polity. And we'll talk more about that later. But congregational polity, what does it mean? It means that we're saying that the congrega- any individual congregation is its own ultimate authority. In other words, that we don't believe in some higher hierarchical structure that governs the church, right? That makes us different from Catholics. It makes us different from Episcopalians. It makes us different from Methodists. Because in all those denominations, what? There's an, there's an overarching structure. There's the Pope. There's the, there's the bishops. There's the, there's the different orders of structure where they can act, they're actually outside of the church, but they have authority over the church. And what we're saying as Baptists is basically nobody can tell us what to do. <laughs> In the, sense that, in the sense that each congregation on their own is accountable to God for what they believe and how they live their lives. And that there is no overarching structure above us. Okay, we're congregational in polity. Congregational in polity. Which is why we are Southern Baptists, but the great thing about being Southern Baptists is no matter what they do um, in New Orleans uh, this summer at the, at the annual convention, it doesn't matter what they do. No one from the Southern Baptist Convention, the president of the convention, the president of the executive committee, the chairman of the executive committee, cannot come to Hillside Baptist Church and tell us one thing to do. Because, because we are autonomous congregations, because we believe that that's what the Bible teaches and that, and that we're individually accountable to God for what we believe and how we practice. All right, so when we're Southern Baptists, what we're saying is that we voluntarily are associating with like-minded churches so that we could cooperate together for the, for, the, uh, for the progression of the gospel. All right? And, we also, and so we believe in uh, the offices of the church, okay? Um, uh, and so even though, the, even though we're congregational in governance, right, that doesn't negate the importance of the biblical offices, okay? Namely, elders and deacons, all right? Or pastors, elders, overseers, and deacons, okay? Pastors are given, according to the scripture, to shepherd the flock, all right? So there's a... There's a, there's a, there's a, a kind of a reciprocal relationship there. In Ephesians chapter four, uh, the uh, Paul says that God gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That means pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so the the pastors and shepherds lead the church, but the the and the but the church serves as a 
as a kind of like as accountability to the elders. And so they work in reciprocal relationship in order to follow Jesus. All right. Uh, the church is massively important in the New Testament. The New Testament has no conception of a believer existing outside the context of a local church. Let me say that again. The New Testament has no conception of a believer existing outside the context of a local church. If, if that happens, that would be a great anomaly. All right? I think if we could travel back in time 2,000 years as the Apostle Paul was traveling around the ancient Roman Empire proclaiming the gospel, and we walked up to him, and he said, and we started talking to him, and he's like, oh, you're a Christian. We're like, yeah. He's like, well, what, where, where's a, what, what group of people do you gather with regularly? And, and you say, well, I don't, I don't gather with anybody, other Christians regularly. He'd be like, what? If I remember correctly, there, there is over 100 one another commands in the New Testament. If you're not with other people, who are you one anothering? Or are you disobeying all those commands? Right? The Bible says do not neglect. The Bible says let us, let us not neglect the, the corporate gathering in Hebrews 10, I believe it is, as is the habit of some. People have been skipping church for 2,000 years. But we're, gonna, but we're saying that we want to do better than that. Right? I'm just, I'm preaching, y'all, I'm sorry. Um, look, guys, the devil is out there to steal, kill, and destroy. You want to go fight him alone? Knock yourself out. But there's a reason why so many are just falling, dropping like flies. Because you're not together. It is our job to make sure, are you listening to me? It is our job to make sure that everyone else in this room makes it to the finish line. Yes, church is messy. Yes, Jesus wouldn't have had commanded us to love one another if it wasn't going to be hard to do. That doesn't, but guess what? That's not Jesus' fault. Church is messy. But guess what? It's Jesus' mess. So you can either be part of Jesus' mess or go out and play games with the devil. But we're in this to survive, to win, to conquer. You can say amen if you want to. It's all right. Baptism. Baptism is important to Baptists, right? And it's, what, and it's also what separates us from other denominations as well, right? Because we believe that immersion, that baptism is immersion, immersion, dunked under the water, all right, of a believer in water uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit, right? Baptism is the public proclamation that one's old self has died and, and that new spiritual life has been raised in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that person has been reborn again. They have been regenerated. They have been made new by the Holy Spirit. They are a new creation. That is what baptism is a symbol of, right? When a person becomes a Christian, what has happened to them is that the Holy Spirit has come into their life, right? They have Their old self has died and new resurrection life is at work in them such that they are now putting their old self to death and living by faith uh, in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian by definition is. Baptism is a symbol of that when we take them underneath the water and raise them up, which is we're saying, we're saying publicly as a church that this person 
to the best of our knowledge, has been born again, has, is a genuine follower, believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Baptist distinctive, therefore, is that only believers should be baptized. Which is why, for example, we don't baptize infants. Why? Because an infant cannot exercise genuine faith in Jesus Christ. They don't have that capacity yet. That's what makes us different from some other denominations. We're not baptizing infants because we believe that baptism is reserved for those who have repented of their sins and followed Jesus, who, to the best of our ability, we can tell, has been born again. All right? This is massively important for Baptists because since we are congregational churches, then it is massively important then who is in the congregation. Are you tracking with me? Right? If we're going to be led by the congregation, but we just let people willy-nilly into the congregation without making certain that they have genuine love for Jesus, then what's going to happen down the road when you have a lot of, let's just be honest, unbelievers in your church? Your church is going to, it's going to be, you're going to, it's not going to be good. Let's just put it that way. So th- these things, these things go, t- they all tie together. Since we're congregational, it's massively important that we, that we are making sure that people who come in understand the gospel, understand. Remember, don't forget, Jesus loved people, but he also turned people away. The people who wanted to embrace a false idea of who he was, you know, he said, look, he said, um, if you want to follow me, you must do what? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what you got to do, right? And so, and so, this is what we believe as Baptists. Baptism doesn't save you. This is important. Lots of people. This is why we got to be so careful with it, too. And this is why I'm so careful with it. Because this, this, is, this is one of the main reasons I'm so careful with it. Is because a shocking number of people really believe that because they got wet one time, they're going to heaven. And that's on me. Baptism does not save you. It's a sign, it's an outward sign of an inward change of heart that is worked by the Holy Spirit. And so, and so me just getting somebody wet isn't, isn't helping them in any way. And it may actually hurt them if down the road they haven't truly trusted in Christ, but they look back to their event thinking they don't need Jesus when they do. So baptism is important, and the way we do it is important. Baptism, number, next is the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of remembrance of Christ's atoning work through his death on the cross. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. It's a, it's a sacred gift that Jesus Christ has given us to remember in a powerful way who he is and what he's been done. A, a tangible, powerful way to remember who he is and what he's done. It's Jesus Christ's gift to the church. Okay? And, it's, and, it's, and, and I think an important aspect of it is that it's a stewardship of the church. It's a stewardship of the church. You know, um, the, another word for Lord's Supper is, is, is sometimes referred to as communion. And in other faith traditions like Catholics, for example, they'll say that um, a person who is able to take communion is called a communi- communicant. A communicant, okay? So if you're able to take communion, that means basically if you're in good standing with the church, you're 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 a communicant, okay? That's where, and, and so the opposite of that is what we would call 
excommunication, right? So when we think of excommunication, we think of somebody getting removed from the church, okay? But what does excommunication literally mean? It literally means, doesn't mean just removed from the church. Literally, it means removed from the Lord's table. You're ex, you're making them excommunicant, <laughs> right? You're, 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 you're disassociating them from the ability to take communion, which historically understood was a, a severe punishment because it's understood that the Lord's Supper is a great means of grace to his people, all right? And historically, that, historically that mattered to people. And it, we, we, we need to regain that. It, it matters. The Apostle Paul said that some of the people in the church in Corinth were sick and some had died. Why? Because they took the Lord's Supper with an impure heart. So we're not playing games about the Lord's Supper. And, in, in, you know, uh, the, patri- the Baptist patron saint Charles Spurgeon uh, supposedly one time threw himself over a table over the Lord's table when, uh, when, a, when um, a, a, a member out of uh, a communication with the church tried to come up and take it. It's a holy gift to the Lord, the Lord's Supper. Next is last things. We're getting close, guys. Last things. What do we believe about the last things? Well, we hold to a bunch of diversity of beliefs about the last things. I, I'm not... You know, if you're all millennial, premillennial, postmillennial, or you don't even know what millennial is, it, you know, it's we can talk about that. But it's not. There, there, there are essentials and there are non-essentials, right? A key, uh, a, a, the key to Christian mature practice is that the clearer it is, the more ho- the more the more firm you hold it. The less clear it is, the more open-handed you could be about it. But if it's clear, we must believe it. All right, there are some things about the end times that are very clear. Uh, namely, that Jesus Christ will physically, bodily return. It's a non-negotiable. And that should be, and we should live our lives in view of that. Jesus Christ will one day return. That's all there is to it. Can you imagine that day? Literally, human history, as we know it, will stop. Because a man descended from the sky. And it's going to blow everybody's mind. That's gonna, it's going to happen. Jesus is coming back, right? Uh, Jesus is coming back. That, that is non-negotiable. Uh, that, uh, that, um, that not only that, but that there will be a physical, literal, bodily resurrection of, of people, right? Jesus taught that there will be actually, not just believers, by the way, everybody will be resurrected from the dead to stand before God, to give an account for what we did with our lives. And when Jesus returns, he will judge all men in righteousness, the, 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 the righteous, those who have trusted in Christ and have their sins forgiven in him, will, uh, will reign with him forever in a renewed earth. Heaven will come down to earth and we will reign with Jesus forever. Those who lived, in, who lived and died in their rebellion against God will be condemned to a place of eternal, eternal conscious torment. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus warned people about that place because he didn't want them to go there. And the last is the family. The last thing we're going to talk about is the family. Um, the family was created by God. Okay? The, the, the first four uh, uh, Ten Commandments deal with our vertical relationship with God. The very first commandment that deals with our horizontal relationships with other people is... 
honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. God created the family. All right? It's God's idea, and we don't, we don't have the right to toy around with it. All right? Marriage is the union of one man and one woman in lifelong covenant. All right? Uh, without undermining the equal value and worth before God, God has ordained the husband as the head of the home, being accountable to him for his leadership. The husband is to sacrificially love and lead his wife and family as Christ does the church. The wife is to respect and submit to her husband as the church does to Christ. Children are to honor their parents. This is the, this is the biblical way to do the family. And it works. And it's worked for a really long time. And probably a lot of the problems in society can be traced back to the breakdown of the family. One of the greatest gifts that you could give to the next generation is do the best you can to be faithful to God's design for the family. And really, one of the greatest witnesses that's going to happen, that's going to be available to us in the coming days in our society is to just have strong, secure, stable families. And we could invite people into our home and people are going to say, I can't believe y'all actually act like you love each other. I can't believe your children actually obey you. I can't believe there's joy in this home. That's one of the greatest things we could do. And we're just going to have more and more opportunity to do this as the society around us continues to degrade. And that's on us, right? That's on us. And as that happens, one of the greatest things we can do going forward as a future is to be family for others. There's going to be a lot of people who finally, when the devil's had their way, they're finally going to realize it's a mess. And God's going to ordain that moment because then we'll be able to say right there and say, you can be my family. And show them what it was meant to be. All right, so these are the ten doctrines of the church. I know that was, it was a kind of more clashes, but that's just the way it is. That's a, that's a taste of what we believe as a church. We want to be biblical. And if what I have explained today is true, then we need to embrace it with all that we are. And so I, I, hope, that, I hope that you take this to heart. If you have any questions or concerns about any beliefs or doctrines, uh, come talk to me. I'd be glad to talk with. I'd be glad to talk with you about them. I want everyone to be able to wholeheartedly embrace what we believe as a church in conjunction with thousands of other Southern Baptist churches. Because not be, not because we're Southern Baptist, but because we're we're biblical. We're trying to honor God in the way that we handle His Word. And I believe wholeheartedly that as we do that as a church, God's going to bless it. I really do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for. Uh, the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that you've brought here today, Lord. Um, doctrine matters because truth matters, because you matter, Lord. And we want to follow you, and we want to honor you, and we want to respect you, and we want to trust you, God, that when you, when, you tell us, when you tell us the way, even if we don't understand it, Lord, we trust you. And so, God, help us to walk this path, and help us as a church to stand firm on the truth, not just for truth's sake, but to know that since your way is best, Lord, we have, we have hope to hold out to people. We have salvation to hold out to people. We have truth to hold out to people to say that there is hope. There is a better way. There is glory. There is a salvation. Uh, there is joy on the other side uh, in you, Lord. And we can, we can hold out these truths with confidence and boldness and humility and kindness because you 
have revealed them to your people. Lord, help us to cling to them as a church as we seek to honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is an opportunity for you guys to respond.